Good morning, everyone. You can make your way back to your seat. If you're out in the lobby, come on back in. Such robust conversation, I hate to break it up, but it's good. Come on in. <clears throat> if this is your first time with us this morning, or if we haven't met before, my name is Brent Smith, uh, one of the leaders here as well, and uh, I think I speak for the whole church when I say that we hope you feel very welcome among us, we hope you feel cared for and loved for, and we hope especially that you meet with God amongst us this morning. We hope that that's been the case so far, we hope that that continues to be the case as we open up God's Word this morning. I hear back, ooh, there's like mood music while I preach, that's cool. Look at us, we don't even need someone behind me on the keyboard. Uh, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. Uh, we've been working our way through this letter uh, by Paul for a while now, uh, but the last time we looked at it was way back in the end of November, and so because of Christmas and whatnot, we haven't been there in a few months. Uh, but we're back in there this morning, so 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and uh, we're going to pick things up in verse 3. I'm super encouraged this morning from worship. Uh, that was great. Wow. Awesome to hear uh, just songs from the heart, songs from the Spirit, uh, praising God, the whole body together, praising God. That's really encouraging to me. We're coming off a great night of fuel this Friday night. With our youth group, we looked at, we've been going through the Youth Alpha series, and we looked at how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit, such a great video, they've done such a great job in that, and, uh, and just being able to go through that with the students, awesome, awesome time. And two of the songs this morning were from members of our Fuel team, and so if you've got uh, a kid in Fuel, you should be encouraged, they're in good hands. Uh, with people who love Jesus and love them, all right? So it was a great blessing to me this morning. And so let's look at 2 Corinthians, and I think we're going to continue to be encouraged through God's Word, at least I hope so. And so we're going to look at chapter 6. Uh, we left off in verse 2 last time, so we're going to pick it up in verse 3 and read through uh, to 13. And so let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we just pray that you would soften our hearts. Uh, so often we just get our backs up against your word. We are so stubborn against it. Our hearts want to rebel against your word. And we just pray, Father, that you would come by your spirit. And you would soften our hearts. We pray that you give us eyes to see what you want us to see, ears to hear what you want us to hear, and hearts to understand. We want to be changed this morning, Father. We pray, uh, I pray that through my words uh, that I would communicate your word clearly and that we would, we would be encouraged this morning, Father. We would be encouraged to follow hard after you as we look at your word together. So we just say, Holy Spirit, come now, work through your word and do what you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we left off uh, kind of the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6. 
Last time, way back in November, Paul showed us that God has given us the gift of reconciliation. He's also given us the gift of the ministry of reconciliation, meaning that we have now been entrusted by God with the responsibility to tell others of what he's done in our lives. And the last verse we looked at was chapter 6, verse 2, where Paul kind of drives home the urgency of that call on our lives when he says, today is the day of salvation. All right? I don't have time to do a full review. Uh, the beauty of technology is you can go back and listen to my monotone voice in your earbuds anytime you desire. Okay? So that's there the end of November uh, if you want a refresher. So he kind of finished, Paul finished with kind of that outward focus. We've been given the gift of reconciliation, but we've also been given the ministry of reconciliation. We now carry that responsibility to tell others of what he's done in our life. And so Paul continues now with that outward focus in the beginning of verse 3. All right? I sang a little hard during worship, so here we go. Verse 3 of chapter 6 says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. All right, there's a lot in there, and there's a big list of things that don't sound very nice, uh, but we'll start to work our way through it, all right? And I want to talk this morning about gospel obstacles, okay? And there's a giant rock in the middle of the road, and I'm thankful that we don't live where that happens. Anyway, so I want to just draw your attention to that opening verse, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3, where Paul says, we put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And so the main goal of Paul's life was to see others embrace the gospel. Paul's apostolic mission was his life. It wasn't just a hobby. It wasn't a career. It wasn't just a nice add-on. It was his life to see others embrace the gospel. He says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful work for me. He would love to die and see Jesus face to face, but in the end, in Philippians, he concludes that it would be better to be alive, not necessarily for his own sake, but for the sake of those that he has come to serve, to see them grab hold of the gospel as well. He tells the Ephesians that he never stops 
praying for them that they might know the hope they have in Jesus. And so it's always this outward focus. The main goal of his life was to see people embrace the gospel. And because of this, he really tailored his life to make sure all that he did would further that, would make that happen. All right? So Paul understood that salvation was God's work, that reconciliation to God was ultimately a gift from God. But if someone rejected the gospel, he didn't want it to be because of his ministry. He didn't want it to be because of something in his life. And so that's how he viewed his life. He viewed it as, what, ha what am I doing that might possibly create an obstacle for someone to come to Christ? And how different that is from how most of us live. How different that is from how I live. We live very much with how can I live to put no obstacles in my retirement's way? How can I live to put no obstacles in my comfort's way? How can I live to put no obstacles in my reputation's way? All our decisions concerning our time, our money, our work, our family are so often just wrapped around the question, will this obstruct my comfort? Will this negatively affect how I am viewed by the world around me? But Paul lives with, how will this obstruct people receiving the gospel? We see in Paul someone who lived his life through the filter of, will this obstruct someone coming to Christ? He lived by a different code than most of us. Paul lived his life to make God look good. Paul lived his life to make God look good. And so often we just live to make ourselves look good. All our Instagram tweet posts all come with kind of an invisible hashtag of don't forget about me. Don't forget about me. Don't forget about the great things I've done. Don't forget about this. Comment about me. Like me. Look at me. But Paul lives his life to be like a headlight. To be like a headlight. And when you're in a car, you never see your own headlights. At least I hope you don't. Uh, but they constantly shine on where you should be looking, right? And so you're in the car, your headlights are always pointing ahead and saying, look here, fix your gaze here. And so Paul wants to live his life, not to get attention for himself, not for people to look at him, but he wants to live his life like a headlight shining on where we should be looking, shining and saying, fix your gaze here at Jesus. Look here at Jesus. This is where your eyes should be fixed on Jesus. He wants to live his life shining towards the one who should get the attention, who is worthy of the attention. And he wanted that light to be as clear and bright as possible. He didn't want anyone to say, I reject Jesus because of Paul. He didn't want anyone to say, because of what I see in Paul, because of how Paul lives his life, because of how Paul conducts his ministry, because of how Paul has treated me, I want nothing to do with Jesus. That would just be unthinkable for Paul, for that to happen. That would cause deep 
sorrow for him. He wants to live his life to put no obstacles in anyone's way to coming to Christ. He wanted people to look at his life and say, man, God looks good. God looks good. And so when we see that in Paul, it's just a kind of a verse that we can just kind of pass by. But you know, you hear him say, we put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And we see his desire in his life to make God look good. We should ask ourselves if that's our desire for our own lives this morning. Or would we much rather someone look at our life and praise us? and praise our achievements, and praise our skills, praise our intellect, praise our education. When people examine our lives, do we want them to say, God is great, or would we much rather them say, boy, she's got it all together? Do we want people to look at our lives and see God as glorious, or would we rather them just fawn over our own beauty or our own accomplishments? Paul says he wants to live his life to not put any obstacles in anyone's way. And sadly, we've certainly seen the opposite of that heavenly in the church. We've seen people not come to Christ because they've got hung up on an obstacle that someone has put in their way, right? Sadly, we've seen that a fair amount. We probably know people in our own lives. Now, some people, they reject Jesus. They reject Christianity. They think it's nonsense. Other people walk away because they're upset with God, maybe. There are a number of reasons, but all too often, we hear people who have rejected Christianity. They've rejected Jesus because they see examples of how Christians live. Often they walk away from the church maybe because of how someone in the church has treated them. And how many times have we heard someone talk about why they aren't following God, why they aren't a Christian, and they point to a person or persons as the reason. It can be a sad but true reality. And so we understand Paul's passion to not have that said about his ministry, right? We understand Paul's deep desire for no one to say that about him, his life, and his work. He wants his life and ministry to be one that removes obstacles, to be one that removes barriers, like a, like a snowplow just plowing forward, creating a clear, level, smooth path behind him for people to come to Christ. That's what he wants for his life. And so from that, when we see that as Paul's desire, we put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. In the verses that follow, I think he shows us two big obstacles that he wants us to take note of. So two big obstacles uh, that we can be guilty of for putting in people's way to come to Christ. And he's going to show us this is how he wants us to live so that those obstacles don't get dropped on the road. All right? You guys can put the verse up so people can follow along. There we go. All right. So two big 
big obstacles uh, that I think Paul wants us to see here. So he's already expressed his desire of how he wants to live. We see that. We can agree with that because we see the dangers of it. And the first obstacle of the two is the obstacle of how we deal with suffering. And the second is how we deal with one another. If you're a note-taking person, I'd ask you to resist the urge to shorten that to how we deal with others because how we deal with one another has a different meaning. How we deal with one another. And so we'll call the first one the affliction obstacle and the second one the friction obstacle for no other reason than it helps me to remember my sermon and I hope it helps you to remember my sermon as well. So the affliction obstacle and the friction obstacle. All right? All right. Ooh, all right. Cool. That's all right. I'm, I'm okay if you think it's corny. But, yeah, we like corny. So the affliction obstacle and the friction obstacle. Okay, so the affliction obstacle. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Or some translations say, we show that we are true ministers of God. Or we demonstrate that we are God's servants. How? How does Paul show the world that he is God's servant? He endures. He endures. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. By great endurance. When we hear the word endurance, we think of just kind of a straight out refusal to quit, right? A commitment to keep going, to keep moving ahead despite the worst imaginable pain or difficult circumstances they endure. You think of the marathon runner just running and uh, uh, I did camp pastor a few years ago at Green Lake Camp and I talked to the kids about in 1984 at the Los Angeles Olympics. I was one year old so I don't really remember it but there's a, a, an amazing story of, of a Swiss runner and she's run the like 26 miles and she comes into the stadium and she's just like collapsing, but she just keeps putting one foot in front of the other. And she comes around the bend and there's like, there's uh, officials there, but if they touch her, she's disqualified. So they keep about a foot away, but they're there, they're concerned for her health and her safety, but she just keeps going. And at the end, her body is basically at like a 45 degree angle at her hips, but she just keeps going and crosses the finish line. That's what I think of when I think of by great endurance. And so here the word serves as a general heading for kind of all that follows. It shows us how Paul handled all the different forms of adversity that are listed. Paul says, I endured. What did he endure? Well, we see first he lists three kinds of general troubles, afflictions, hardships, calamities, these things are to be expected as we live in a broken world, a world broken by sin. Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. Paul told his listeners in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The next three are all troubles that he's experienced from others. Beatings, imprisonments, riots. When you read about Paul's life, through Acts and through his letters, we see a man who endured a long line of abuse from others. 
He will say later in 2 Corinthians that he lived with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. The last three in Paul's list are three self-inflicted troubles. Labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Paul voluntarily worked to the point of exhaustion, went without sleep, missed meals to do his work for the gospel. And so this kind of triple trio of suffering points to just how much hardship Paul endured as he fulfilled his mission to carry out the spreading of the gospel. And so we just need to try to picture that for a moment. Just try to picture for a moment what this was like. So imagine Joe returns from a trip to St. John's to visit our friends Rafaro and Samu, looking to see the church established there in Newfoundland. And I say, Joe, you just returned from your trip. Do you want to come up and give an update? And so Joe comes up and he says, well, they threw rocks at me during my first sermon on Sunday night. And uh, Rafaro and I went down into the city center Monday morning uh, we were beaten by rods by two leaders from a local church that were opposed to us. The police chief threw us in jail for the next two nights. They didn't feed us. We weren't sure if we were going to make it back alive, but the ministry went well. We can't even wrap. It's so outside of our scale of what our expectations are and what we're accustomed to that we can't even wrap our heads around what that would be like, can we? I can't. It's so outside of our thinking. We don't even know how we would respond, but this was Paul's regular life. This was Paul's regular life. He encountered these things regularly, and then look at how he responds in verse 6. He responds with purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God, weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And so for Paul, it wasn't just with kind of white-knuckled, grit-your-teeth endurance. It was endurance marked by a purity of life and endurance marked by kindness and genuine love. In his endurance, his speech was always truthful. His righteous, holy life was like a weapon in his hands, and he battled on. He didn't succumb to sin's temptation as things got tough and he got tired. It was an endurance marked by the presence and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, with him. And so it didn't matter if it was honor or dishonor coming his way, slander or praise, his outlook never changed and he continued moving on. He could be treated as an imposter and yet know that his calling was true. His message was true. He could be unknown to men as a nobody, a nothing, and yet know that he was well known to God. He could be outwardly dying and punished, and yet know that eternal life was his. He could experience real sorrow, 
in the face of the hardships he was experiencing, sorrow in light of so many rejecting the gospel, and yet always rejoicing. He could be poor and have nothing materially, and yet possess everything because the kingdom of God was his, and through his ministry, he was able to see others experience the richness of God. And so we can hear Paul say these things, we can go through this list, I mean, it's just beatings and torture, and then it's just, oh, love and kindness and the Holy Spirit, and we can just think, he's a lunatic, he's a lunatic. How can you rejoice when you're getting whipped? With all these afflictions, why do you keep going? So often when we encounter trials and afflictions of a much smaller scale, our lives are not marked by great endurance, but great grumbling. I know for myself, when I experience things of a infinitely less magnitude than what Paul experienced, my life is marked by great complaining and great frustration and great whining. Ice on the driveway creates great grumbling in my heart. And here's Paul enduring through riots and imprisonments and beatings and sleepless nights and hunger. I'm much more apt to throw a great pity party than I am to greatly endure. I don't know about yourself. So how did Paul do it? And maybe we see a bit of the answer if you look at Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. In Hebrews 10, 32 to 34, it talks of a group of Christians very similar to Paul who endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. On top of that, it says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. How? Because they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. They were able to joyfully endure suffering here on this earth because their eyes were fixed on heaven. They could suffer loss now because they looked to an inheritance to come. And that's how Paul was able to deal with his own suffering and not let it become an obstacle for others. He was able to go through all these things, but do it with kindness and patience and genuine love and power from God and the Holy Spirit and righteousness in both hands. Paul can say that he had nothing, yet possessed everything, that he was poor but rich because he knew that his treasure was in Christ. Jesus was his treasure. And so no beatings or imprisonments or sleepless nights could take that joy from him. Those sufferings and those afflictions, their arm wasn't long enough to reach his happiness, which was up on the top shelf with Jesus, right? It was out of reach. Paul had a joy that was out of reach by the world's sufferings and the, and the hardship that he experienced. So why is this important for us? Because Paul is showing us that when we don't do that, when we instead respond to suffering and to hardship in the same way that the world does, when our joy evaporates as soon as difficulty arrives, when we turn to the same things the world turns to for comfort and for consolation in the midst of our suffering, we're creating obstacles for those around us to come to Christ. Because our response 
to suffering is no different to those with no hope in Christ. And so the general perception is, well, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? I guess God isn't that great after all. Look at this guy. He's in the same spot I am. He reacts the same way I do. And on top of that, he doesn't get to sleep in on a Sunday morning. Why would I want that life? How we deal with sufferings has a powerful effect on our Christian witness. How we deal with suffering has a powerful effect on our Christian witness. And some of you this morning are in very difficult circumstances. Some of you are in intense physical suffering, relational difficulty, financial problems, whatever it might be. Some of you are going through things that I can't even begin to wrap my head around. And I'm not diminishing what you're going through in any way. So I hope you don't hear it in that respect. And you need to know that we as elders, we gather and we pray for you and we long to see your freedom from those things. We don't desire suffering on anybody, but at the same time, we need to see just how powerfully suffering can work in our life. Because if Christ is not our treasure, then those sufferings will only work to harden and embitter our heart. But if Christ is our treasure, then we have the opportunity to show the world around us in the midst of incredible suffering that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is enough, that Jesus satisfies, that all things might be going down the tube, but I've got Jesus and I'm satisfied. Whom have I in heaven besides you? There's no one on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And when we approach life like that in the midst of our struggles, then people look at our lives and they say, God is great. God is good. Jesus must be something else because this guy is going through incredible suffering and yet he does it with genuine love and he does it with a power that comes not from himself. He's not just gritting his teeth and grinding through and enduring the suffering. He's enduring with a greater purpose. He's not fixated on himself. He's using his suffering and his endurance to shine a light on the greatness and the glory of God. And so when we approach suffering the same way as Paul, it's not just about turning a blind eye, pretending things aren't going on. It's not about putting on a fake smile. It's not about losing touch with reality. It's about grabbing hold of a greater reality that our treasure is found in Christ. And when we do that, then we remove obstacles in the path to see others receive the gospel. We need to take note of how we deal with suffering in our lives. And the second obstacle, <clears throat> possibly even more important, is the friction obstacle. We looked at the affliction obstacle and now the friction 
obstacle that I think Paul wants us to be mindful of. We see this not in a command that Paul gives us, but in an example that he shows us in verses 11 through to 13. He says it was kind of that weird part at the end that I read that you thought, what in the world is that all about? But he says in verse 11, he says, we have spoken freely to you. Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. So Paul's giving us an example here. We see him firsthand doing what he can to remove another obstacle for people. See, it's not just how we deal with suffering and hardship that can create obstacles, but also, so often, people struggle with Christianity because of how we treat each other. And we need to realize that our lack of dealing with friction, division, bitterness, unforgiveness within the body amongst ourselves can create huge obstacles for people coming to Christ. 1 John 4.12 says that whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's not me being strong. That's God's word being strong to us. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so often we hear people say, you know, why would I ever go to church? Just look at how they treat each other. Or I tried church once and I got hurt pretty badly. We've all heard it and some of us have experienced it ourselves. Maybe like Paul, we've been mistreated. We've had people misinterpret our motives. We've been the object of unfair criticism and gossip. And it feels like no matter what we do, no matter how much we serve, we're just thrown down and dragged through the mud. Maybe we're more like the Corinthians and we've grown to distrust others. We've listened to gossip. We've gossiped ourselves about others in the church. We've been hurt or we know others who've been hurt and there's little room in our hearts left for the church. You can feel the tension here in Paul's words. We've looked at it before. We've talked about how this tension between Paul, how they've misinterpreted him, they've been offended. He's done painful visits, remember, and he's written severe letters. <clears throat> you can hear the tension in his words here in, in verses 11 to 13. Things are not right between them, but Paul's desire is to see the relationship restored. He comes to the Corinthians knowing all the hard feelings that they may have towards him, and he calls them by name. He doesn't just say, hey you, he says, Corinthians. He calls them by name. He calls them his children. It's not, a, it's not a put down. He's not saying that they're acting childishly. Rather, he's expressing how he views them as his own children. Paul, see, led the Corinthians to Christ. He was the one who brought them to Christ. He was kind of their spiritual father. And so it's, a, it's more a term of endearment than it is a put down, you children. He's saying, you children, you're mine. You're my children. He's expressing his love for them. It's not easy to speak with loving terms when someone has hurt us. We'd much rather put up our walls and not expose ourselves to more 
hurt. But Paul says, hey, my heart is wide open to you. You are not restricted by us, which one translation says, I have not allowed you to be squeezed out of my heart. I have not allowed you to be squeezed out of my heart. And you think, oh, all the stuff the Corinthians have done and all the things they've said about Paul, surely he has every right just to say, hey, I got a bunch of other churches I can work with, all right? Philippi, here I come, right? But he says, I have not allowed you to be squeezed out of my heart. He's going to these people who he knows are upset with them. They feel that they've been wronged by him. And there is that tension and that friction between them. And he wants them to hear loud and clear of his love for them. But then he says, but you are restricted in your own affections. It's kind of, I'm open to you, but you're closed to me. And we've got to set this right. And he pleads with them to widen their hearts to him as he has done to them. He's not being heavy-handed. He's not just playing the apostolic trump card. His language here is, isn't official. It's, it's personal. He's pleading with them like a friend to a friend, like a father to a child. And so we need to see Paul's intense desire for there to be no tension in the body of Christ, for there to be no friction. He doesn't just want to sweep things under the rug. He doesn't want to let things fester and see bitterness grow. He wrote in Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sometimes it's out of your hands and you do the good that you can do. But he says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So often we look at these relational difficulties and this kind of dysfunction in the family and we just say, well, how can I get through in the best possible shape? How can I get through kind of unscathed? How can I get through and still look the best that I can look? But Paul's concern isn't that kind of self-conscious. He's very much God-conscious. How can we deal with this situation so that God looks good? And so he just opens his heart at the risk of being shot down again, at the risk of suffering more pain and more rejection. He says, I've opened my heart to you. We've got to make this right. We've got to make this right. When you see Paul and you read his letters, you see a man who pursued unity in the church because he knew that the effectiveness of the gospel depended on it. Whether it was how he endured through suffering or how he dealt with relational conflict, he didn't want anyone to look away from Christ because of what they saw in his own life. These are two major, major obstacles. And so we need to take these things seriously. And I'm not preaching about anything specifically. I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody. We all might be good in here, which is great. Praise God. Awesome. But if there is things and the Holy Spirit's bringing these things to light, we have to deal with them. We need to have unity in the body. We need to take the words of God seriously when he says that whoever loves God must love his brother. 
if there is bitterness, if there is forgiveness, if there is that friction, maybe it's things that happened years ago, maybe it's things that happened this week and are just beginning to fester. Deal with them. Deal with them. Don't let that friction just sit there. Maybe you feel you've been misunderstood. Maybe you need to repent of gossip or hurtful words. Whatever it might be that has crept in and fostered that division, it needs to be made right. We need to see our lack of love for each other for what it is as an obstacle to the gospel. For those we have offended who are trying to deal with the hurt for ourselves as we harbor that unforgiveness and, for that, and that bitterness and for others who are looking on as they see us uh, as, as John says, if, if we can't love each other who we've seen, then how can we love God who we've not seen? You know, Jesus, he didn't say that the world will know we are his disciples by the way we serve the poor. He didn't say the world will know we're his disciples by the way that we evangelize the lost. When he wanted to see the distinction of who his disciples were, he said, this they all will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. By your love for one another. And when we read Paul's words of his longing to see things being made right between him and the Corinthians, we should use that to remind us as well of how God pursued us, of how we had our hearts closed to God and yet God opens his heart wide to us through Jesus on the cross, that even though we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us out of his great love for us. He moved towards us. He initiated that reconciliation between us and himself, even though our offense towards him was so much greater than any offenses that are in this room today. We need to see, as Paul says, I've opened my heart to you. I'm not restricted. I haven't squeezed you out of my heart. And we need to praise God that he didn't squeeze us out of his heart, but he welcomed us in and he brought that reconciliation. He piled forgiveness and grace on us. We're going to get ready to share in communion together. <clears throat> and we're going to have different spots around the room. We'll have two up here and two in the, in the back corners. And we'll get up and come to, the, to receive the bread and the cup together. And I just encourage you that if the Holy Spirit's been bringing things to light and you feel you need to deal with stuff, with people even in this room as we all get up, just take that courage to go over and say, look, I've got to ask for your forgiveness. I've got to make things right between you. And you can sit together and you can share in communion together. It's, if it's a big thing and it's going to take some time, then just say, look, I'm ready to start this process of getting this made right. And then you share in communion together. We need to take seriously these obstacles to the gospel. We don't want to put obstacles in our way of receiving Christ in others' way. We want to deal with these things. We want to take seriously when Jesus says, 
all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Amen. All right. The Bicknell's Life Group is going to come up. Joel's going to come up and lead us.